Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. The anticipated Christ, a lamb led to the slaughter. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. If we're talking about anticipating the Christ, the Messiah, historically, then we're going to spend a lot of time with Isaiah. Isaiah is the prophet who most clearly anticipates the Messiah. Now, six centuries before the birth of Jesus, this long time before Jesus, six centuries before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah of the exile wrote a series of four poems, poems known as the servant songs. We find these four poems in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53. And in these four poems, we really do find the contours of the gospel story. An anticipated servant of God whose suffering brings salvation to Israel and to the world. Now, <clears throat> some of you, if you've you know, bothered to dig into this a little bit, some of you are that type of person, uh, you will hear some scholars and commentators speak of the identity of the servant as a mystery, as if you know, Isaiah didn't really know who the servant was. Uh, but that's not really the case. Isaiah clearly identifies the servant as Israel. For example, in the second servant song, the servant himself says this, And the Lord said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So, it's pretty clear right there. The servant whom these four songs are about is Israel. And yet... It's not as simple as that. Because there is an element of mystery in the way the servant is so often depicted as a lone individual, a single person. And we'll get to that later. But let me right now just give you a quick synopsis of the first three sermon songs. We're going to look at the fourth, final, and most famous of the uh, servant songs in some detail. But I want to just give you kind of a feel for the first three because we don't have time to Look at all four of them. That would, that would be, take too much time for a Sunday morning. Um, in the first servant song, which is Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, we're told that the servant will bring light and truth to the Gentile nations who are depicted as being imprisoned in chains and in a dark dungeon. This is remarkable. So you have, you have Israel, the Jewish people, the chosen people, and they inhabit a Gentile world. 
And Israel's interaction with the Gentiles has not been good. In fact, Isaiah of the exile is crafting his poems at a time when Israel is living under Gentile domination, exiles in Babylon. And so you would think maybe the, the only attitude of Isaiah and others toward the Gentiles would be one of animosity, but this is not true. Because Isaiah foresees a time when the servant of the Lord, Israel, will bring light and liberation to the Gentiles who through their idolatry are locked in a dark dungeon. That's very interesting. And though the influence of the servant is clearly going to be global because it's going to bring light to the nations, the rest of the world, the demeanor of the servant, despite being global in influence, the demeanor of the servant will be quiet and gentle. Isaiah 42 Two, this is from the, the first of the servant songs. He will not cry out or lift his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Ah, you probably know that actually from Matthew, but it first appears in that first servant song in Isaiah 42. In the second servant song, which is Isaiah 49, 1 through 7, we're told that the servant will bring salvation to Israel because this is the first task of Messiah. But then God says this to the servant. <clears throat> Isaiah 49, 6. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. All right, so, so Messiah is the Jewish Messiah, the Savior that saves Israel, and that's prophesied. But then God says, nah, that's, that's too small. My servant is too great to be limited only to bringing salvation to Israel. My servant will bring salvation to the nations. My, my servant will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So the servant is depicted as bringing a universal salvation because God so loved the world. Amen? Amen. The third servant song, Isaiah 54 through 9, is the first time that we learn that the servant will suffer. And this is shocking to us. The servant of the Lord in the first two songs is depicted as glorious, global in influence, entirely successful in completing the mission that God gives to the servant. And yet, now we're told that in the process of saving Israel and saving the nations, that the servant will suffer. The servant says this in Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Now, before we look at the fourth, final, and most famous of the servant songs, I want to just make a few remarks. First of all, though the servant is Israel, that's clear, we're told that, the servant also 
most often seems to be a lone individual, a single person. I mean, his back will be beaten, his beard plucked out, and his face spat upon. Though it was probably impossible to really predict the suffering, death, and, spoiler alert, resurrection of the servant in the 6th century B.C. by reading Isaiah's servant poems, it's also impossible for Christians to read the servant songs and not see Jesus. I mean, we read and we go, what do you mean you don't know who it is? And this is so from the very, very, very beginning. The very first Christians. I'm, I'm talking about the Christians in the, you know, the very beginning. You know, Easter Monday. <laughs> they, they, they open up their Bibles and they just, they, that's Jesus. That's, that's Jesus. He gave his back to those who beat him. They plucked out his beard. They spat upon him. That's Jesus. And in fact, it's not just limited to how they would read the servant songs of Isaiah or the whole scroll of Isaiah or, no, this is how they read the whole Old Testament. Now they suddenly, on Easter Monday, they suddenly have a brand new Bible. They have a brand new Bible and all they want to do is find Jesus. And they learn this from Jesus on the Emmaus road. What does he say? He said, oh, you, you foolish, you foolish ones. Don't you know, haven't you read that the Messiah must suffer these things before entering into his glory? And then beginning in Moses and all the prophets, he shows them how to read the Old Testament as about Messiah. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So <clears throat> let's say this, the, the servant is Israel. We're told that. But clearly the servant is Jesus. Well, Jesus is the embodiment of Israel who as a single individual fulfills their messianic vocation. I mean, some might think, well, you know, Israel was failing in their task, what God had called them to be. Well, maybe, but they didn't fail because Jesus, well, we use, we use, this, in, we use this language in, in sports. He, he put the team on his shoulders and carried them through to victory. That's what Jesus did. He took the messianic vocation of Israel and he put it on his shoulders, literally in the form of his cross, and carried it all the way through to victory. Israel does not fail because Jesus is Israel embodied in a single person and he wins the victory. Now, here's a mysterious thought. It's probably from these prophetic texts that Jesus came to understand his mission. I mean, did Jesus know the future? Yes, I mean, in the sense that he could and did predict. He said, usually speaking in the third person, he would say the son of man will be rejected, will be beaten, will be spat upon, will be put to death, and on the third day raised again. But Jesus is not, he doesn't have a memory of the future like, like, oh, I've seen this movie before, I know how it goes. Rather, Jesus derives, I believe, his knowledge of what awaits him from these texts. 
from these texts. I understand. He's very God of very God, and yet he's also fully human. I mean, when Jesus is 12, he shows up in the temple and he's asking questions of the scholars there. Now, we're not told what questions he asked, but it's hard for me not to think that he might be going, uh, this servant that's going to bring salvation to Israel and to the nations. But he's also rejected. He's also beaten. What about that? Well, nothing anticipates the suffering of Christ more clearly than the fourth final and the most famous of the servant songs. We know it as Isaiah 53, although it actually starts at the end of Isaiah 52 because the first people to start dividing chapter and verse oftentimes didn't do a very good job of it. Uh, so we'll start with that. We're just going gonna to walk through it today. Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13, the fourth servant song of Isaiah. See, my servant, there it is, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up, and he shall be very high. Um, well, you might first read that and just think, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The servant's going to come, sent by God, going to be glorious, going to be exalted, going to be very high. Yes, all that's true. But how do we not think about John 12, 32, where Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And then John adds the commentary. He said this to indicate by what means he would die. In other words, the being lifted up is lifted up in crucifixion. Yes, it's lifted up in glory, but the crucifixion of Christ is the glory of Christ. Watch how it flows into the next thought. Verse 14. Just as there were many who were astonished at him, so marred was his appearance beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of mortals. So he shall startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which had not been told them, they shall see. And that which they had not heard, they shall contemplate. So Messiah comes, the servant comes. He's high and lifted up, but he's going to startle nations because he's going to be marred. He's going to be disfigured. Something terrible is going to happen. And it's going to startle. It's going to shock. It's going to astonish the nations. In 1900, the artist Sir Francis Dickey painted the two kings. We have a, a, a print of this hangs in the hall outside of my study. The two kings. Let's see if we can just kind of look at this. So we have this, we have this medieval king riding back victorious from battle. He's still in his armor. He's sitting astride his war horse. It's always some dude on a horse. There he is. His left hand holds onto the reins of his war horse. His right hand rests upon his sword. There's a celebration of victory. The women are throwing flowers. The banners are flying. But none of that is really what caps our, captures our attention. What we're drawn to is the startled, astonished face of the king. The king has seen something and he's, he's shocked, he's astonished, he's startled. He shall shut the mouths of kings. 
Kings shall shut their mouths in astonishment because as we look at the king's face and then follow his gaze, oh, he sees another king wearing another crown, thus the title of the painting, the two crowns. Our medieval king on his white war horse, he wears a crown of gold, but the other king wears a crown of thorns. He's astonished. Maybe, maybe he realizes there is another way. This, this king, this medieval king on his white war horse, he has won his kingdom like all the king, kings do by slaying his enemies and winning a battle. This king wins his kingdom, not by slaying his enemies, but by laying his life down upon the cross and forgiving them. He's astonished, startled. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. I wish more kings would shut their mouths. Amen. 53.1. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord. That's a, that's a nice metaphor for Messiah. That, that Messiah is God's arm reaching down to save. We can't save ourselves. And here comes the arm of the Lord to save us. This is Messiah. For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground. I mean, where, where does Messiah grow up? He doesn't grow up in Jerusalem. He doesn't grow up in Rome. He grows up in Nazareth. Now, I know Nazareth is famous now, but it wasn't then. It was just this tiny podunk, nowheresville that people would say things like, oh, Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's growing up as a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was, in fact, despised and rejected by others. A man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity or you know, I know it in King James. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Jesus wept. Yeah. As very God of very God, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But before that, as fully human, he stands among us in sorrow and weeps with us. He's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom others hid their faces, he was despised. And we held him of no account. He came to his own, and his own rejected him. Verse 4 Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Notice the, the determinatives and the pronouns here. Surely he has borne our infirmities, not his infirmities, our infirmities. He's carried our diseases. carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. So when, when harm, when evil, when smiting, beating, ultimately crucifixion comes upon Jesus, in the moment, people stood aside and said, ah, see, see, he's getting what he deserves. He deserves it. 
He went around making these great claims about himself, but now God is judging him. No, God was not judging him. Uh, Don't forget this. The violence of Good Friday is purely of human origin. God was not beating his son. Sinful humanity was beating the son of God. We misread it. We said, oh, this is what God does. No, this is not what God does. This is what we do. We see our sin. We project our sin on God. We say, well, God must be doing No, God says, no, you're doing that. But Jesus bears it. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. I mean, we send our sins into Jesus. Those holes in his hands, his feet, his side, those are the entrance wounds as we send our sins into him. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. Somehow, in the wounds of Jesus, we find our own healing. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On Good Friday, the sin of the world is coalesced into a hideous singularity. It becomes one thing. All the sins become one sin. The sin of crucifying Jesus in order that it might be forgiven in man. Father, forgive them. All the sin of the world becomes one sin, that that one sin might be forgiven. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shares the silence, so he did not open his mouth. And all of the passion narratives eventually, at some point, whether it's before Caiaphas or before Herod, or before Pilate, Jesus simply becomes silent. There's no point in him trying to defend himself. He'll have to be defended by the Father in resurrection. He doesn't continue to argue and try to defend himself. And his final words are, Father, it's in your hands now. It's in your hands now. Verse 8, by a perversion of justice, he was taken away. So is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ justice? No, it's a perversion of justice. He's the one innocent one. He's he's the one that didn't deserve it. And yet, and yet Plato, even Plato, the Greek philosopher, yeah, he foresaw this. He was almost like a prophet. He was kind of a pagan Gentile pre-Christian prophet. And he engages in this thought experiment with him and his brother in the Republic, and he, he says, uh, what would happen if a perfect man, this is 350 years before Christ, what would happen if a perfectly innocent, a perfectly just man came among us? He means into Athens. And he said, I'll tell you what would happen. We would reject him. We would beat him. We would spit upon him. We would scourge him. And then after all manner of abuse, we would crucify him. That's exactly what Plato said. I find that just astounding that 350 years before Christ, Plato's saying things like that. If a perfectly just one came among us, his fate would be to be crucified. It's not justice, 
By a perversion of justice, he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? Well, I mean, you, you put someone to death, their future's over. They have no future. Unless, okay, spoiler stuff here. Can, can one who is crucified and put to death have a future? Perhaps. For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, or Septuagint stricken because of the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. We just can't read this and not see Jesus because it's who it is. All right, so they made his grave with the wicked. Jesus is crucified out of Golgotha with two other criminals, two, two other criminals. And it's presumed that he will be given the ignoble burial of being tossed into a common grave. Because you don't, you don't give crucified criminals a decent burial. That's part of the punishment. And yet, and yet, that's not what happens. Because Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, intercedes and intervenes and buries Jesus in his tomb. So, so he's, he's they're trying to make his, his uh, grave with the wicked, but in the end, his tomb is with the rich. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. This verse has created some trouble. There are some people that, that run into the Old Testament and grab a hold of it and say, see, see, it was, it was God who was ultimately responsible for killing Jesus. And that the father was pleased that his son was tortured and put to death, crushed by pain. A couple of thoughts about that. Isaiah 53 shows up many times in the New Testament, but never this verse. So the first thing I would say is I think it's probably a poor idea to try to do New Testament atonement theology on a verse that doesn't occur in the New Testament. The second thing I would say is if you are going to do New Testament theology with Old Testament text, you need to do it like all of the New Testament writers did, and that is you use not the Hebrew, but the Greek translation, the Greek Septuagint. That's what they all quoted. That's what they all read. That's what they all used in their writings. And in the Septuagint, Isaiah 53, 10 reads like this, the Lord is willing to cleanse him from his injury. Yeah. The Lord is willing to cleanse him from his injury. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and prolong his days. Wait a minute. He's put to death, but the Lord's going to prolong. That's resurrection. He's going to be put to death. He's going to have a grave. First, it's going to be with the wicked, but no, no, no. In the end, he's, he's buried with the rich, but that's not the end of his days. The Lord's going to prolong his days. He's going to be raised, and he'll see his, his offspring. Yes, he came to his own, and his own rejected him, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Hallelujah. Verse 11, out of his anguish, he shall see light. He shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous 
and shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil among the strong. The cross is not where Jesus saves us from God. God is not our enemy. Sin and death is our enemy. The cross is not where Jesus saves us from God. The cross is where Jesus reveals God as Savior. The cross is not what God inflicts upon his son in order to forgive. The cross is what God in Christ endures as he forgives. At the cross, the son never acts as an agent of change upon the father. All good theology confess that the father is immutable. He doesn't mutate. He doesn't change. He's the same. He's not subject to change. At the cross, the father is not changed by the son. At the cross, the father is revealed by the son as the one who loves us and forgives our sins. So when he prays, father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The father says, of course, son, that's who we are. That's what we do. And this is where we forgive all of the sins. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Hallelujah. All right, the end of that last verse. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yes. He was, he was crucified with two others. One, two, three, numbered among the transgressors, but he was the innocent one. And he poured himself out to death he, pour, he poured himself out. Jesus would say things like, no one takes my life from me. I, I pour it out. I, I give it. I lay my life down. The apostle Paul gives us that great hymn. He says, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with, the God, uh, of, equality with God a thing to grasp and hold on to. But no, being found in the form of a slave. He emptied himself. He poured himself out. And he became obedient unto death, even death upon a cross. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Christ ever lives to make intercession for you, for you, you, you and me. We, we transgressors, we sinners. How, how many sinners do we have here today? Any sinners? Any sinners bother to get up and come to church on Sunday morning? Sinners? Yes, I like this person in the back waving both hands. That's the way to do it. Right here. Christ ever lives to make intercession for you. Jesus is praying for you. Not condemning you. Praying for you. All right. So on the third Sunday of Advent, I need to, I need to end with uh, good news. Everything's going to be all right because Jesus is the one who suffered for you and died for you and rose for you and ever lives to make intercession for you.
you are being saved and you will be saved because Jesus is your savior, the servant of the Lord, the lamb of God. Jesus is the one who saves us. Amen. Amen. Stand up with me. This Advent, as we wait on the Lord, we await a salvation that is sure because Jesus is the Savior. Amen. Let's prepare our hearts now to come to the table of the Lord and participate in his life. We're told that as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we, we proclaim, we tell the story of the Lord's death until it comes, and that's what we've done this morning. You might think, well, this, this, sounds, like, this sounds like a Lenten sermon, sort of, but it's also anticipating Christ because it was, all, it was Old Testament. And so we see how the contours of the gospel are so clearly given in Isaiah that sometimes people call Isaiah the fifth gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Isaiah. Amen. Join with me in confessing our faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join me in confessing our sins together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.